Welcome to Falls Creek 2018. This is week eight of eight weeks of summer youth camp, July 27th. This week, we have 5,224 students and adults registered full-time from 107 churches. You are listening to the Friday evening service with our guest speaker, Ed Newton. During this service, there were 201 decisions, including 77 professions of faith. Enjoy. Use those same hands to put our hands together to show some love to this band that has faithfully led us in worship all week long. Come on, you can do better than that. Come on, you can do better than that. Let them know. If you got a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Hebrews. Yeah, come on. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start there and then we'll get into Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 12. As we get to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read a verse to us tonight that will serve as the springboard into this message. And let me just say this to you. The message that I'm sharing with you tonight, I've not preached anywhere else. God gave it to me here at this week of camp. It's literally written down on a scratch piece of paper with a pen that I found backstage that somehow, some way, began to surface in my heart based upon a conversation with Pastor Matt. Therefore, as I was sitting in a rocking chair, drinking some coffee with my wife of almost 20 years, my brown sugar is what I call her, amen, I was watching all of you come to the tab, and my wife and I sitting there in those rocking chairs watching you go to the tab for your morning time of Bible study, I said, every single one of them wrestle with a form of identity. If they could just know who they are in Jesus Christ, they could change the world. If you could just know who you are in Jesus Christ, you are more than a conqueror. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And therefore, based upon the promise of who Jesus is and what he's already done, won't you listen to me, Falls Creek Week 8, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Does that make sense? I've read the end of the Bible, we win. So if we know that we win in the end, then we have to choose not to live in defeat today. And so this promise of these four messages that is, we started with Moses. We began to talk about, yes, Ruth, yes, Abraham, yes, Gideon. But how does this weave together to somehow point to the theme of this week called finish? The key verse, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He'll finish it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, he who called you is faithful, he'll do it. What will he do? He'll finish the work that he started in you. The big word is called sanctification. Romans 15, 16 says he sanctifies us by his spirit. See, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, one of the things that you need to know, he didn't just save you from something, he saved you to something. Come on, i got to get an amen from somebody in the house. He didn't just save you from something, he saved you to something. The reason why you're on this planet is because there's a mission that you got to embrace to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
It is by the power of the Holy Spirit we shall be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's by faith that that happens. I want to read a verse to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 would say this. It's a definition of faith. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Several years ago, I was traveling as an evangelist. I'm now a pastor in San Antonio, Texas. And one particular evening, I finished up the night session, drove through the night to get home just in time to have breakfast with my kids before they went off to school. I walked in. I just got to give you this visual. I dropped my suitcases in the kitchen, and I'm like, Dad's home. And at that moment, my kids were just like mid-waffle. And all of a sudden, they just kind of turned towards me, but then continued to eat. I knew it was early. They were a little groggy. Maybe they didn't figure out that I'd kind of stepped in the kitchen. Maybe they just thought, well, maybe that sounds like dad, but we don't know for sure if it's dad. And so I was like, hey, hey, dad's home. And all of a sudden, one of my kids said this. They were like, dad, where, where's our surprise? Where's the, if you will, the reward? Because I'd gotten into this tradition. Every time I left the house, I came home with a surprise, a gift. And one of my kids were like, dad, where's the gift? And I'll never forget my daughter, Liv, who's now 12 years old, going into the seventh grade. She said to the table, to her sisters and to her brother, hey, every time dad comes home, he doesn't have to bring a gift or a surprise. And then she said it. She goes, dad's the surprise. He's the gift. And it was at that moment, like everything in me was like, hey, you other three, you got to go to school. Liv, you're skipping school today. We're going to the food court at the mall, riding the carousel, going to build a bear. I'm just going to spend the full inheritance on you. But the Spirit of God just dropped a message in my mailbox. And oftentimes, here's what we do. We follow Jesus because we want what's in his hands, but not what's in his heart. We want the stuff. Can I say this to you? Jesus is the stuff. What's the reward of following Jesus? Dun, 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 dun. Jesus, he's the reward. Oftentimes people follow Jesus because the stuff, it's him that's the reward. And there's been a picture, and I'm going to ask our ministers of illumination, magnification to get this queued up. There's been a picture that's been seared on my heart. And man, I, it's crazy. I get emotional just thinking about this picture, and I don't know if it's going to move you or not, but this is the picture I have in my mind because I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. I'm going to put this picture on the screen. A teenage girl running towards Jesus with that face of I've been waiting my whole life to see you. We're all running to something but there's no one more worthy of running to than Jesus. I want to show you something significant tonight because this word finish, we, we don't know when Jesus will return, which, by the way, there's a lot of debate and discussion in regards to the return of Jesus. Could we just agree to this? Jesus is coming again. He is coming. We don't know when that will happen. Therefore, we have to live, and I want you to listen to me, we have to live every day that today could be the day that he comes. And may he find us ready. May he find us faithful. So either Jesus returns or we die. One way or the other, we're going to see him face to face. 
It's by faith that we live currently, believing that we're a part of something much larger than ourselves. And I want to give you a few concepts tonight that basically, and this is where this is a new message for me, that we take the four messages of what we've studied, Moses, Ruth, Abraham, and Gideon, and we see how the story finishes. So if you got something to write with and something to write down on, point number one, I want you to write this down. I want you to write the word Moses dash by faith. Moses dash by faith. And I want you to write down this reference. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11. You're already there. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. If y'all still with me right now, say amen. Listen to this. Hebrews 11 Verses 24 and following give you the finishing statement about Moses. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Don't miss that. Did you you catch that? The reproach of Christ. You go, hang on. Jesus is in the New Testament. No, Jesus is all over the Old Testament. We talked about this. That his thumbprint is throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The New Testament points back to Jesus. Jesus is the hero of every story. He is the hero. But notice what it says. He considered, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater than wealth, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I'm talking about a chariot with spinners on it. Chain hang low. Second in command, he forsakes the riches of this world, saying that this could never satisfy. Only Jesus could satisfy There was a father that sits down on the edge of the bed of his little girl named Susie. Susie had spent every dime, quarter, nickel, and penny out of her piggy bank to buy a plastic beaded necklace at like a Walgreens or a CVS. She wore it every day, never took it off. Susie was probably in kindergarten, first grade. Daddy would sit down on the edge of the bed and said, Susie, can I have your necklace? No way, Daddy. And she would point at something else. In the toy chest. The next night, Susie can have your necklace. She'd point at something else in the toy chest. The third night, he sits down in the corner of little Susie's bed, tears beginning to flow down her face. He noticed the necklace was gone. He immediately tried to fill in the blanks of possibly the reason why she's crying is because the necklace is gone, but he did not know this was about to happen, that little Susie, with tears flowing down her face, stretched out her hand And there was the necklace, not broken, not like daddy fix it, but instead, daddy, you can have it. She said those words, daddy, I know that you're about to ask me for my necklace, and because I love you, I want you to have it. It sounds insensitive until you hear the rest of the story. And at that moment, daddy took the necklace out of her hand, put it in his front pocket, and then he reached in a back pocket and pulled out a blue velvet bag, one you'd get at Jared's or Zales. And at that moment, began to untie the satchel reached into that bag and pulled out a real set of pearls and fastened it around his little girl's neck. And don't you miss this, Falls Creek Week 8. 
He said, baby girl, I've been waiting for you to give up the dime store stuff so I can give you the real thing. The real thing. I want you to know what Moses lived by was this. Jesus, you are the real thing. And the treasures of this world do not compare to the wealth of knowing you. Listen to me. You can have stuff. You can be stuff. You can do stuff. And for those of you Oreo fans, you could be the double stuff. But stuff is just stuff without Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We learned that from Moses. And I want you to write down this underneath that point. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the reward. My grandmother, Elizabeth Lawson, we called her Granny Boo. I can't wait to meet her in heaven. She was the first one to pray over my life. I talked about her this week. She taught me this. I wrote it in my Bible. My wife has wrote it in her Bible. My grandmother taught me this. Jesus is always worth it. He's always worth it. He is the reward. He is the prize. But point number two, write this down. Not only do we see Moses by faith, Jesus is the reward. Point number two, we see Ruth by faith. I want you to write down Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. And I'll just read this to you. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. Which, by the way, I don't know if there's been a moment for you in your personal Bible study reading time. You just begin to read like so-and-so begot so-and-so and and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so. It's called the genealogies. And we're like, I'll just skip that. Like, I don't really know all these names. But in Matthew chapter 1, it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, which, by the way, if you know anything about Boaz, he would marry Ruth. Now, all you single ladies in the house, I need you to hear me. I just had Beyonce just kind of pop up in my mind right there. All you single ladies. I want you to listen to me. When you read the love story of Ruth and Boaz... I need you to know it came down to, you got a list of a lot of characteristics you're looking for in that man, but it's just real simple. Love Jesus, got a job. Love Jesus, come on. Love Jesus, got a job. It's that simple. Love Jesus, got a job. Everything else, negotiable. Love Jesus, got a job. Boaz, love Jesus, got a job. Ruth, The Moabite woman. One of the things that you need to know, Boaz, a Jewish man, marries a Moabite woman. We talked about the Moabites. They worshiped a God by the name of Chemosh, a demon god. Ruth would say this to Naomi, your land, my land, your people, my people, your God, my God, and I'll die where you die. And therefore, we see her turn her back on Moab and go to Bethlehem, the house of bread, Judah means praise, and she would follow God. And it was there in that moment that she began to provide for Naomi, two widows living together. She would glean in the field. I wish I had more time to unpack this for you, but she would glean in the field of a man by the name of Boaz, and Boaz began to look in her direction. He would invite her to the table, share food with her. You just don't let anybody put their tortilla chips in, their, in your salsa. Are you with me? 
And so all of a sudden you got Ruth being courted by Boaz. I want to share this incredible thought because we just read a significant statement in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Why was Boaz so inclined to the Moabite woman that was marginalized and, if you will, overlooked, abandoned, neglected, mistreated, misaligned. Why did he have a heart for her? Yes, she was beautiful. Yes, she had a winsome spirit. But why did Boaz have eyes for Ruth? Because when you trace the genealogy, we just read this, that the mother of Boaz was Rahab. You may not know who Rahab was, but Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a woman of the night. And when you read in Matthew, I'm about to have a kinetic outburst on this stage, that in the genealogies of Jesus, that Jesus makes room for the prostitute. He lets Rahab be a part of a future story that would allow Ruth to enter in to a future story. I don't know what your past has dealt you but I need you to know your future has been written for you, that you got a God that invites you in to the story, in to the family. And so when we talk about this message of Ruth by faith, Matthew chapter one, verse five, Jesus is redemption. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. And here's just a drive-by statement. That is, Ruth had nothing that is, her father-in-law's name was Elimelech, and he died and left Naomi nothing. And when you had land and possessions that you could not afford to keep, they tried to keep it in the family name. And therefore, the next closest relative had the obligation of purchasing, that is, releasing the debt. For example, if you owed a debt you could not pay, you would hire yourself out. And if you owed a debt that you could not pay over a period of 50 years, it would be what's called the year of jubilee. And at the 50-year mark, you would be released from your debt, but you would have a family member that would go, you're my family. I don't want you to be in debt. I don't want you to be a slave. So I will put the cash forward, and I will purchase this, putting it back in your name. And Boaz not only redeems the land, but he also with the land gets Ruth and gladly shouts from the mountaintops that she's my wife. Jesus is our redeemer. He is the kinsman redeemer. We owed a debt we could not pay, and Jesus paid it in full. You and I, because of our sin, Romans 3.10, none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 59.2, our sins have separated us from God. Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in our transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 64 would say this, that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Therefore, apart from grace and mercy, we're hopeless and helpless. And therefore, we were enslaved to this rebellion 
that would basically turn our back on God. But I'm so thankful. This is the distinct difference between world religions and the movement of Christianity. World religions teach that you got to save yourself. It's by you trying harder, doing better. And it's this mental picture of you working up some mountain to get God. But that's not the message of Jesus. It's Jesus that comes down the mountain to get us, to redeem us, to buy us, to adopt us, to call us, to choose us, to deliver us, to forgive us, to give us grace and mercy and our names to be a part of this family. Come on, church. Get with me tonight. We understand the promise of his word that Jesus is redemption. He is the kinsman redeemer. See, are you watching how the Old Testament is now finishing up in the New Testament? God gave us a word this week, but now we look at Abraham. Abraham, point number three, Abraham by faith. Hebrews 11 verse 17 would say this. Hebrews 11 verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Which, by the way, that phrase, only son, is used three times in the Bible. Take your son, whom you love, your only son, go to the land of Moriah. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then it's mentioned one more time. Take your only son. But listen to verse 18. Of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Oh, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Did you catch that? Oh, come on, listen to me. Don't miss this. Do you remember when we talked about Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham looked at the servants? The boy and I will go yonder and worship. And what did he say? And we will come back to you. How did he speak with that kind of assurance? He believed that if he, remember the sign for Abraham, let's all practice that together. Let's put our hands up, make that rock fist on the count of three. Let's do this together. One, two, three. One more time. One, two, three. That There would not be a moment where the angel of the Lord would stop the hand, but actually he'd put a knife through the heart of his son. But what did he believe? That God would raise him from the dead. That God would raise him from the dead. So what is this teaching us? That is by faith, Moses teaches us that Jesus could gracious, I'm about to lose my mind on this stage, that Jesus is the reward. What does Ruth teach us? That Jesus is our redemption, our redeemer. But what does Abraham teach us? That Jesus is our resurrection. He is the one that comes back from the dead. And if he is alive, which I believe he is, He can take care of the details of your life. Trust him. Believe in him. There's a little story about a young man by the name of Johnny. It was an Easter Sunday morning, and Johnny had Down syndrome, and he was in the Sunday school class, and everybody loved Johnny. Johnny was the people's champ. Everybody loved spending time with Johnny. Johnny made everybody laugh. Then the Sunday school teacher gave the assignment, that is to take those plastic eggs and go into the church parking lot and find something that would symbolize life. And so you can only imagine a group of elementary school kids that would bring back random things that they would put in those little Easter eggs. 
And it was a show and tell moment from that Sunday school teacher. And that Sunday school teacher, one egg after another, it would be a flower or a caterpillar or another bug. And it was just a show and tell moment. And it was just filled with oohs and ahs. And then there was a moment where the Sunday school teacher opens up an egg and it's empty. So several moments of ooh, ah, and then oh. Teacher goes, who didn't understand the assignment? And little Johnny began to raise his hand. But he clarified. He said, teacher, uh, I understood the assignment, but Johnny, why is your egg empty? Don't miss this. Little Johnny said these words. Teacher, you told us to go into the church parking lot and find something that represented life. And I watched everybody picking up things and putting them in the egg, and I just thought it's Easter, and the tomb is empty. The greatest picture of life is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. I love what 1 Corinthians 15 would say, oh, death, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up by the grave. Thanks be to God, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 would say, thanks be to God who's given us this victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has overcome the grave. He's defeated sin, death, and hell. He's the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. There's nobody in his weight class, and one day he's coming again. But meanwhile, the reason why we're left on this earth is to operate through the power of the resurrection. It's Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. By faith, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. I believe tonight that God is allowing us to believe again, dare to dream again, to live again in a way that we understand nothing is impossible with God. Can I just break it down in some language that would possibly have some improper English? Nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. I mean, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. And so when you and I think about the significance of his resurrection, that marriage relationship with your mom and dad, I've prayed with many of you this week saying, Ed, pray for my mom and dad. They're on the brink of divorce. Nothing is impossible. For that drug addiction that many of you have been facing, can I just say this over somebody's life today? I I would be amiss. I would be a fool to think That many of you, which by the way, relate with the fact that I didn't grow up in church. Many of you have no church background. So you came into a week of camp. Many of you battling things. You were told not to bring paraphernalia, any type of substance that would obviously be in the category of a drug. And so you leave that at home. And then you find yourself here for five days. And you have an addiction. It could be a pornography addiction. It it could be maybe a sexual addiction. It could be a substance abuse addiction. And here's what you need to know. For five days, now because of this close proximity of supervision, you've been here for five days, maybe a little bit longer for some of you, and you've gone five days without that one thing that you needed to have that high or that feel-good moment. Can I say this to you? If you can go five days, you can go five weeks. And if you can go five weeks, you can go five months. And if you can go five months, you can go five years. And you can choose to live a life of purity, 
not only just sexually in regards to waiting for the one. By the way, can I say this to you? He's worth the wait. She's worth the wait. Come on. To live a life of purity. But there's no high greater than a Holy Spirit high, I promise you. You, you, could, you could try to find a lot of things that would satisfy your flesh, but it'll leave you empty every single time. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, nothing is impossible with God. One last principle, we'll close with this. We now look not only to Moses, Jesus is the reward. Ruth, by faith, Jesus is redemption. Abraham, by faith, Jesus is the resurrection. Then we talked about Gideon. Gideon, by faith, Jesus is my rescue. Jesus is my rescue. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Now it gets into this section of Scripture. There's been a lot of names that have been mentioned. And then it's almost like the author begins to speed up Spent a lot of time talking about these other heroes of the faith. And then it just gets really quick. And notice how it just goes into a lot of names. And then it goes into the anonymous. We don't know who they are. But verse 32, before it goes into the anonymous, one last reference to Gideon. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Ladies and gentlemen, Gideon makes it into the heroes of the faith chapter. And the one thing that we know about Gideon is that he was fearful for his life. He gets a word from God in the wine press, which by the way, we talked about the, the contrast. He's in the wine press and the spirit of God says, the Lord is with you. That is, his power is on you. Oh, mighty man of valor. You don't run from the army, you run to the army. But where is Gideon? He's in the wine press threshing Wheat because he's afraid and God speaks over him prophetically. God speaks a future identity into his life. And therefore you hear Gideon, as we talked about last night, would cut down the Baal, would cut down the Asherah. He put it in the wood chipper that he rented from Lowe's and then he set it on fire and he sacrificed the bull there that belonged to his daddy to say that there are no rivals to my God. And God would honor that. We talked about the fact that he was afraid of the townsmen, even his own father, so he did it at night. And we said this, night obedience is better than what? No obedience. Night obedience is better than no obedience. But then, that is, the men gather in the valley known as Jezreel. Some of you that have been reading the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, it would be called the Valley of Megiddo. It's the very location where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. 135,000 men gathered against the nation of Israel. Gideon would have an army of about 32,000 that would be whittled down to 300. The original 300 story. And therefore, 300 men, by the Spirit of God... I'm talking about what candles and trumpets begin to defeat the enemy. But there's one verse that I believe you need to understand that gave him the power in which he walked in. And it was not a power in and of himself. But I want you to notice in Judges chapter 6, verse 34, you write down that reference. Judges chapter 6, verse 34, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord clothed clothed Gideon. False Creek, if you're still with me right now, come on, say amen. amen. 
when you hear that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, you need to know it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, now we got to get better as pastors talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And in the words of the Ghostbusters, we ain't scared of no ghost. And I'm talking about the Holy Ghost. And we need to understand that the Holy Spirit, as we see in the days of creation, is active throughout the Old Testament, giving wisdom and strength. But here's the difference. Don't miss this. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God rested on Old Testament saints, therefore empowering them to do the assignment that God had called them to. But now, as New Testament believers, here's what you know to be true, that the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit of God rest upon them, but when when the movement of the Holy Spirit happened in Acts chapter 2, therefore they were filled with the Holy Spirit, not, if you will, Jesus-flavored, but Jesus-filled with the Holy Spirit. Which means that whosoever calls in the name of the Lord, the moment you ask Jesus, this is what's been happening in hundreds of people this week that's been creating transformation. It's the Holy Spirit. And so when somebody calls on the name of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, our body is the temple of the living God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, here's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament, Holy Spirit rested on. New Testament, the Holy Spirit resides in. I got good news for you, False Creek. When you leave this place, guess who goes with you? God. He goes with you. So let me illustrate it this way. Just for the sake of time, if I were to put out these four cups with just a simple illustration... If I were to say to you that the Holy Spirit, this concept, the Holy Spirit is in us through the person of Jesus Christ, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And I know this illustration, it crumbles at a lot of practical theological truths. But just for a creative, sanctified, imaginary moment, just think about this. If this represented God, God allowed his presence to be in the garden in Genesis And his presence walked amongst them, Adam and Eve, and his presence went with them. Sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve are now separated from God, but God would allow his presence to rest in the Ark of the Covenant, a four-by-two-by-two box that went with the people of God. And therefore, the Ark of the Covenant would be the symbolic presence of the power, the prestige, and the preeminence of God. And God went with his people. And the priest would carry the Ark of the Covenant. God would now allow his presence to be in what's known as a tabernacle. And one day of the year, called Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, The priest had the ability to go into the Holy of Holies and therefore intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel and all their sin. So God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle. David 
would long for the presence of God to reside in a permanent address. That is, the Ark of the Covenant moved with the people. The tabernacle moved with the people. But David said, I want your presence to reside in one location and will come to you. And therefore, they built, built a temple. Solomon built a temple. But now we get into the New Testament. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His name is Jesus, the Emmanuel, God with us. He came to this earth, suffered and died, beaten, smitten, scourged, blasphemed. He would say that he is the fount of living water. And if anyone found their salvation in him, they would never thirst. They would never die. But then Jesus would look at his disciples and say that I have to die for you. But good news, there's one that's coming that will be your comforter. He'll counsel you. He'll give you strength to you to allow you to walk in this principle that we learn from Gideon to be clothed in the Holy Spirit that he would be our rescue. And when a person calls upon the name of Jesus Christ, I was 15 years old. I went to a Wednesday night Baptist prayer meeting. I didn't grow up in church. And October 17th, 1990, the message of Jesus was shared. And that day I called on the name of the Lord and I received Jesus. And this is what's true of me and this is what's true of you. When you invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, this is the proof of the gospel. It's not something that we come to Falls Creek and we just get to experience God here, but when we call on the name of the Lord, this is the promise. And now he's in me and he satisfies me for he is the fount of living water. And the book of Revelation closes in Revelation chapter 22 with this promise. In Revelation chapter 22, it says this to us tonight. What a word this is. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And the let... The one who desires to take the water of life, and here it is, for free. For free. You, you got to hear that tonight. It's not clean your life up, and, th and then you can receive Jesus. It's not try harder, then you can receive Jesus. It's not do better, then you can receive Jesus. It's you humbling yourself before God, going, I I'm unworthy of your salvation. I'm unworthy of your forgiveness. I know what I've done was wrong. Your spirit has reminded me of that through the preaching of your word, through the Bible studies, through these, these moments of my youth pastor speaking into me, and I now humble myself, and I say, yes, Jesus, I surrender all. And tonight, the invitation is yours. Come drink from the fount of living water and let Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, fill you with this promise. Let's stand together if you don't mind. You've been a phenomenal audience tonight as we stand all across this worship center. The Spirit of God has been moving. The Spirit of God has been working. And I'm so thankful to have a group of people. You know, it's one thing to love to preach. It's another thing to love the people that you preach to. 
and I love you from the depth of my soul, and I want you to know your identity in Christ. But with heads bowed, eyes closed, you got to come to the place in your life where you simply trust him. Nobody can make that decision for you. I was 15 years old when I made that decision. I promise you the only regret I got in my life with Jesus is that I did not make that decision sooner. Now's the time. Now's the time. 